Section 3 of Self-Help This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Self-Help with Illustrations of Conduct and Perseverance by Samuel Smiles. Chapter 1. Self-Help, National and Individual, Part 2. The chemist Vaucalin was the son of a peasant of St. Andre de Herbedot and the Calvados. When a boy at school, though poorly clad, he was full of bright intelligence, and the master, who taught him to read and write, when praising him for his diligence, used to say, Go on, my boy, work, study, call in, and one day you, you will go as well dressed as the parish church warden. A country apothecary who visited the school admired the robust boy's arms and offered to take him into his laboratory to pound his drugs, to which Vaucalin assented in the hope of being able to continue his lessons. But the apothecary would not permit him to spend any part of his time in learning, and in unascertaining this, the youth immediately determined to quit his service. He therefore left St. Andre and took the road for Pali, with his haversack on his back. Arrived there, he searched for a place as apothecary's boy, but could not find one. Worn out by fatigue and destitution, Vaucalin fell ill, and in that state was taken to the hospital, where he thought he should die. But better things were in store for the poor boy. He recovered, and again proceeded in a search of employment, which he at length found with an apothecary. Shortly after, he became known to Forcroy, the eminent chemist who was so pleased with the youth that he made him his private secretary. And many years after, on the death of that great philosopher, Vaucalin succeeded him as professor of chemistry. Finally, in 1829, the electors of the district of Calvados appointed him their representative in the chamber of deputies, and he re-entered in triumph the village which he had left so many years before, so poor and obscure. England has no parallels to show of promotions from the ranks of the army to the highest military offices, which have been so common in France since the First Revolution. La Carie Auvert Oxtalines has there received many striking illustrations which would doubtless be matched among ourselves where the road to promotion is open. Hoche, Humbert, and Beek Hedgegu began their respective careers as private soldiers. Hoche, while in the king's army, was accustomed to embroidered waistcoats to enable him to earn money wherewith to purchase books on military science. Humbert was escape grace when he knew that sixteen he ran away from home and was by turns servant to a tradesman at Nancy, a workman at Lyons, and a hawker of rabbit skins. In seventeen ninety two he enlisted as a volunteer, and in a year he was general of the brigade. Clabber Lefebvre, Souchet, Victor, Lyons, Sault, Massina, Saint Sir de Hulon, Mugrat, Agueu, Bessiers, and Ne all rose from the ranks. In some cases, promotion was rapid. In others, it was slow. Saint-Sir, the son of a tanner of Toul, began life as an actor, after which he enlisted in the Chassiers and was promoted to a captaincy within a year. Victor du de Belluno, 
enlisted in the artillery in 1781. During the events preceding the revolution, he was discharged, but immediately on the outbreak of war, he re-enlisted, and in the course of a few months, his intrepidity and ability secured his promotion as adjutant major and chief of battalion, Muat, quote, Le Beau unquote, was the son of a village innkeeper in Perigord, where he looked after the horses. He first enlisted in a regiment of chasseurs from which he was dismissed for insubordination, but again enlisting, he shortly rose to the rank of colonel. Ney enlisted at 18 in a chasseur regiment and gradually advanced step by step. Kleber soon discovered his merits, surnaming him the Indefatigable, and promoted him to be adjutant general when only 25. On the other hand, Soult was six years from the date of his enlistment before he reached the rank of sergeant, but Soult's advancement was rapid compared with that of Messina, who served for 14 years before he was made sergeant, and though he afterwards rose successfully, step by step, to the grades of colonel, general of division, and marshal, he declared that the post of sergeant was the step of which all others accustomed the most labor to win. Similar promotions from the ranks in the French army have continued down to our own day. Chan Garnier entered the king's bodyguard as a private in 1815. Marshal Ogiod served four years in the ranks, after which he was made an officer. Marshal Randon, the present French Minister of War, began his military career as a drummer boy. In the portrait of him in the gallery at Versailles, his hand rests upon a drumhead, the picture thus being painted at his own request. Instances such as these inspire French soldiers with enthusiasm for their service as each private feels that he may possibly carry the baton of a marshal in his knapsack. The instances of men in this and other countries who, by dint of preserving application and energy, have raised themselves from the humblest ranks of industry to eminent positions of usefulness and influence in society, are indeed so numerous that they have long ceased to be regarded as exceptional. Looking at some of the more remarkable, it might almost be said that early encounter with difficulty and adverse circumstance was a necessary and indispensable condition of success. The British House of Commons has always contained a considerable number of such self-raised men, fitting representatives of the industrial character of the people, and it is to the credit of our legislature that they have been welcomed and honored here. When the late Joseph Brotherton, member for Southford, in the course of the discussion on the Ten Hours Bill, detailed with true pathos the hardships and fatigues to which he had been subjected when working as a factory boy in a cotton mill, and described the resolution which he had then formed that if it was ever in his power, he would endeavor to ameliorate the condition of that class. Sir James Graham rose immediately after him and declared amidst the cheers of the house that he did not know that Mr. Brotherton's origin had been so humble but that it rendered him more proud than he had ever been before of the House of Commons to think that a person risen from that condition should be able to sit side by side on equal terms with the hereditary gentry of the land. 
The late Mr. Fox, member for Oldham, was accustomed to introduce his recollections of past times with the words, quote, when I was working as a weaver boy at Norwich, unquote, and there are other members of Parliament still living, whose origins has been equally humble. Mr. Lindsay, the well-known shipowner, until recently member for Sunderland, once told the simple story of his life to the electors of Weymouth in answer to an attack made upon him by his political opponents. He had been left an orphan at fourteen, and when he left Glasgow for Liverpool to push his way in the world, not being able to pay the usual fare, the captain of the steamer agreed to take his labor in exchange, and the boy worked his passage by trimming the coals in the coal hole. At Liverpool he remained for seven weeks before he could obtain employment, during which time he lived in sheds and fared hardly, until at last he found shelter on board a West Indianman. He entered as a boy, and before he was nineteen, by steady good conduct, he had risen to the command of a ship. At twenty-three he retired from the sea and settled on shore, after which his progress was rapid. Quote, he had prospered, quote, he said, Quote, by steady industry, by constant work, and by ever keeping in view the great principle of doing to others as you would be done by. Unquote. The career of Mr. William Jackson of Birkenhead, the present member for North Derbyshire, bears considerable resemblance to that of Mr. Lindsay. His father, surgeon at Lancaster, died leaving a family of eleven children, of whom William Jackson was the seventh son. The elder boys had been well-educated while the father lived, but at his death the younger members had to shift for themselves. William, when under twelve years old, was taken from school and put to hard work at a ship's side from six in the morning till nine at night. His master, falling ill, the boy was taken into the counting-house where he had more leisure. This gave him an opportunity of reading and having obtained access to a set of the encyclopedia britannica he read the volumes throughout from a to z partially by day but chiefly at night he afterwards put himself to a trade was diligent and succeeded in it now he has ships sailing on almost every sea and holds commercial relations with nearly every country on the globe among like men of the same class may be ranked the late richard cobden whose start in life was equally humble, the son of a small farmer at Midhurst in Sussex. He was sent at an early age to London and employed as a boy in a warehouse in the city. He was diligent, well-conducted, and eager for information. His master, a man of the old school, warned him against too much reading, but the boy went on in his own course, storing his mind with the wealth found in books. He was promoted from one position of trust to another became a traveller for his own house, secured a large connection, and eventually started in business as a calico printer at Manchester. Taking an interest in public questions, more especially in popular education, his attention was gradually drawn to the subject of the Corn Laws, to the repeal of which he may be said to have devoted his fortune and his life, it may be mentioned as a curious fact that the first speech he delivered in public was a total failure. But he had great perseverance, application, and energy, 
and with persistency and practice, he became, at a month, one of the most persuasive and effective public speakers, extorting the disinterested eulogy of even Sir Robert Peel himself, M. Doyon de Hughes, the French ambassador, has eloquently said of Mr. Cobden that he was, quote, a living proof of what merit, perseverance, and labor can accomplish, one of the most complex examples of those men who sprung from the humblest ranks of society, raised themselves to the highest rank in public estimation by the effect of their own worth and of their personal services. Finally, one of the rarest examples of the solid qualities inherent in the English character, unquote. In all these cases, strenuous individual application was the price paid for distinction, excellence of any sort being invariably placed upon the reach of indolence. It is the diligent hand and head alone that maketh rich in self-culture, growth, in wisdom, and in business. Even when men are born to wealth and high social position, any solid reputation which they may individually achieve can only be attained by energetic application, for though an inheritance of acres may be bequeathed, an inheritance of knowledge and wisdom cannot. The wealthy man may pay others for doing his work for him, but it is impossible to get his thinking done for him by another, or to purchase any kind of self-culture. Indeed, the doctrine that excellence in any pursuit is only to be achieved by laborious application holds as true in the case of the man of wealth as in of Drew and Gifford, whose only school was a cobbler's stall, or Hugh Miller, whose only college was a Cromarty stone quarry. Riches and eases, it is perfectly clear, are not necessary for man's highest culture, else had not the world been so largely indebted in all times to those who have sprung from the humbler ranks. An easy and luxurious existence does not train men to effort or encounter with difficulty, nor does it awaken that consciousness of power which is so necessary for energetic and effective action in life. Indeed, so far from poverty being a misfortune, it may, by vigorous self-help, be converted even into a blessing, rousing a man to that struggle with the world in which, though some may purchase East by degradation, the right-minded and true-hearted find strength, confidence, and triumph. Bacon says, quote, Men seem neither to understand their riches nor their strength. Of the former, they believe greater things than they should. Of the latter, much less. Self-reliance and self-denial will teach a man to drink out of his own cistern and eat his own sweetbread, and to learn and labor truly to get his living and carefully to expend the good things committed to his trust, unquote. Riches are so great a temptation to ease and self-indulgence to which men are by nature prone that the glory is all the greatest who, born to ample fortunes, nevertheless take an active part in the work of their generation who, quote, scorn delights and live laborious days, unquote. It is to the honor wealthier ranks in this country that they are not idlers, for they do their fair share of the work of the state, and usually take more of their fair share in its dangers. It was a fine thing, said of a subaltern officer in the peninsular campaigns, observed trudging alone through mud and mire by the side of his regiment, quote, 
there goes 15,000 L a year, unquote. And in our own day, the bleak slopes of Sebastopol and the burning soil of India have borne witness to the like noble self-denial and devotion on the part of our gentler classes may a gallant and noble fellow of rank and estate having risked his life or lost it in one or other of those fields of action in the service of his country nor have the wealthier classes been undistinguished in the more peaceful pursuits of philosophy and science take for instance the great names of bacon the father of modern philosophy and of worcester Boyle, Cavendish, Talbot, and Ross in science. The last name may be regarded as the great mechanic of the peerage, a man who, if he had not been born a peer, would probably have taken the highest rank as an inventor. So thorough is his knowledge of smith work that he is said to have been pressed on one occasion to accept the foremanship of a large workshop by a manufacturer to whom his rank was unknown. The great Ross telescope of his own fabrication is certainly the most extraordinary instrument of the kind that has yet been constructed. But it is principally in the departments of politics and literature that we find the most energetic laborers amongst our higher classes. Success in these lines of actions, as in all others, can only be achieved through industry, practice, and study, and the great minister or parliamentary leader must necessarily be amongst the very hardest of workers. Such was Palmerston, and such are Derby and Russell, Disraeli and Gladstone. These men have had the benefit of no ten hours bill, but have often during the busy season of Parliament worked, quote, double shift, unquote, almost day and night. One of the most illustrious of such workers in modern time was unquestionably by the late Sir Robert Peel. He possessed in an ordinary degree the power of continuous intellectual labor nor did he spare himself his career indeed presented a remarkable example how much a man of comparatively moderate powers can accomplish by means of assiduous application and an indefatigable industry during the forty years that he held a seat in parliament his labors prodigious he was a most conscientious man and whatever he undertook to do he did thoroughly all his speeches bear evidence of his careful study of everything that had been spoken or written on the subject under consideration he was elaborate almost to excess and spared no pains to adapt himself to the various capacities of his audience Withal, he possessed much practical sagacity, great strength of purpose, and power to direct the issues of action with steady hand and eye. In one respect, he surpassed most men. His principles broadened and enlarged with time and age. Instead of contracting, only served to mellow and ripen his nature. To the last, he continued open to the reception of new views, and though many thought him cautious to excess, he did not allow himself to fall into that indiscriminating admiration of the past which is the palsy of many minds similarly educated, and renders the old age of many nothing but a pity. The indefatigable industry of Lord Braham has become almost proverbial. 
his public labors have extended over a period of upwards of sixty years during which he has ranged over many fields of law literature politics and science and achieved distinction in them all however he contrived it has been to many a mystery once when sir samuel romilly was requested to undertake some new work he excused himself by saying that he had no time quote, but unquote, he added quote, go with it to that fellow broken he seems to have time for everything unquote. the secret of it was that he never left a minute unemployed withal he possessed a constitution of iron when he arrived at an age at which most men would have retired from the world to enjoy their hard-earned leisure perhaps to doze away their time in an easy chair lord braham commenced and prosecuted a series of elaborate investigations as to the laws of light and he submitted the results to the most scientific audiences that paris and london could muster about the same time he was passing through the press his admirable sketches of the men of science and literature of the reign of george the third and taking his full share of the law business of the political discussions in the house of lords sidney smith once recommended him to confine himself to only the transaction of so much business as three strong men could get through but such was brogham's love for work long become a habit that no amount of application seems to have been too great for him and such was his love of excellence that it has been said of him that if his station in life had only been that of a shoe-black he would have never rested satisfied until he had become the best shoe-black in england another hard-working man of the same class is sir e bulwer lytton few writers have done more or achieved higher distinction in various walks as a novelist poet dramatist historian essayist orator and politician he has worked his way step by step disdainful of ease and animated throughout by the ardent desire to excel on the score of mere industry there are few living english writers who have written so much and none that have produced so much of high quality the industry of bulwer is entitled to all the greater praise that it has been entirely self-imposed to hunt and shoot and live at ease to frequent the clubs and enjoy the operas with the variety of london visiting and sightseeing during the season and then off to the country mansion with its well-stocked preserves and its thousand delightful outdoor pleasures to travel abroad to paris vienna or rome all this is excessively attractive to a lover of pleasure and a man of fortune and by no means calculated to make him voluntarily undertake continuous labor of any kind yet these pleasures all within his reach bulwer must as compared with men born to similar estate have denied himself in assuming the position and pursuing the career of a literary man like byron his first effort was political weeds and wild flowers and a failure his second was a novel falconed and it proved a failure too a man of a weaker nerve would have dropped authorship but Bulworth had pluck and perseverance, and he worked on. Determined to succeed, he was incessantly industrious, read extensively, and from failure went courageously onwards to success. Pelham followed Falkhand within a year, and the remainder of Bulworth's literary life, now extending over a period of thirty years, has been a succession of triumphs.
Mr. Disraeli affords a similar instance in the power of industry and application in working out an eminent public career. His first achievements were like in Bulworth's in literature, and he reached success only through a succession of failures. His wondrous tale of Alroy, an revolutionary epic, were laughed at and regarded as indications of literary lunacy, but he worked in on other directions, and his Coningsby, Sybil, and Tancred proved the sterling stuff of which he was made. As an orator, too, his first appearance in the House of Commons was a failure. It was spoken of as, quote, more screaming than an Adelphi farce, unquote, though composed in a grand and ambitious strain. Every sentence was hailed with, quote, loud laughter, unquote. Hamlet played as a comedy were nothing to it, but he concluded with a sentence which embodied a prophecy, Writhing under the laughing with which his studied eloquence had been received, he exclaimed, quote, I have begun several times many things and have succeeded in them at last. I shall sit down now, but the time will come when you will hear me, unquote. The time did come, and how Disraeli succeeded in Atalanth, commanding the attention of the first assembly of gentlemen in the world, affords a striking illustration of what energy and determination will do. For Disraeli earned its position by dint of patient industry. He did not, as many young men do, having once failed, retired, dejected, to mope and whine in a corner, but diligently set himself to work. He carefully unlearned his faults, studied the character of his audience, practiced sedulously the art of speech, and industrially filled his mind with the elements of parliamentary knowledge. He worked patiently for success, and it came, but slowly. Then the house laughed with him instead of at him. The recollection of his early failure was effaced, and by general consent, he was at length admitted to be one of the most finished and effective of parliamentary speakers. Although much may be accomplished by means of individual industry and energy, as these and other instances set forth in the following pages serve to illustrate, it must at the same time be acknowledged that the help with which we derive from others in the journey of life is of very great importance. The poet Wordsworth has well said that, quote, These two things, contradictory though they may seem, must go together, manly dependence and manly independence, manly reliance and manly self-reliance. From infancy to old age, all are more or less indebted to others for nurture and culture, and the best and strongest are usually found the readiest to acknowledge such help. Take, for example, the career of the late Alexis de Tocqueville, a man doubtly well-born, for his father was a distinguished peer of France and his mother, a granddaughter of Malazibs. Through powerful family influence, he was appointed judge auditor at Versailles when only twenty-one, but probably feeling that he had not fairly won the position by merit, he determined to give it up and owe his future advancement in life to himself alone. A foolish resolution, some will say, but de Tocqueville bravely acted it out. He resigned his appointment and made arrangements to leave France for the purpose of traveling through the United States. 
the results of which were published in his great book on democracy in America. His friend and traveling companion, Gustave de Beaumont, has described his indefatigable industry during this journey. Quote, his nature, unquote, he says, quote, was wholly adverse to idleness, and whether he was traveling or resting, his mind was always at work, unquote. With Alexis, the most agreeable conversation was that which was the most useful. The worst day was the lost day, or the day ill-spent, the least loss of time annoyed him. Tocqueville himself wrote to a friend, quote, There is no time at which one can wholly cease from action, for effort without one's self, and still more effort within, is equally necessary, if not more so, when we grow old. As it is in youth, I compare man in this world to a traveler journeying without seizing a colder and colder region. The higher he goes, the faster he ought to walk. The great malady of the soul is cold, and in resisting this formidable evil, one needs not only to be sustained by the action of a mind employed, but also by contact with one's fellows in the business of life. Notwithstanding de Tocqueville's decided views as to the necessity of exercising individual energy and self-dependence, no one could be more ready than he was to recognize the value of that help and support for which all men are indebted to others in a greater or a less degree. Thus he often acknowledged with gratitude his obligation to his friends de Kurgorle and Stoffels, to the former for intellectual assistance and to the latter for moral support and sympathy. To de Kurgorle he wrote, quote, Thine is the only soul in which I have confidence and whose influence exercises a genuine effect upon my own. Many others have influence upon the details of my actions, but no one has so much influence as thou on the origination of fundamental ideas and of those principles which are the rule of conduct. Unquote. De Tocqueville was not less ready to confess the great obligations which he owed to his wife Marie for the preservation of that temper and frame of mind which enabled him to prosecute his studies with success. He believed that a noble-minded woman insensibly elevated the character of a husband, while one of a groveling nature as certainly tended to degrade it. And fine human character is molded by a thousand subtle influences by example and precept, by life and literature, by friends and neighbors, by the world we live in, as well as by the spirits of our forefathers, whose legacy of good words and deeds we inherit. But, great unquestionably, though these influences are acknowledged to be, it is nevertheless equally clear that men must necessarily be the active agents of their own well-being and well-doing, and that however much the wise and the good may owe to others, they themselves must in the very nature of things be their own best helpers. End of section 3. Recorded by Mike Ferry 252.